to the Healing Place Podcast. I am your host, Terry Welbrock. Excited to have you here with us, listening in, and also excited to have another wonderful guest. I will be doing some introductions in just a moment, but just wanted to welcome you here first to this space filled with motivation and inspiration and healing stories. All right, everybody. So we are super, super excited to have with us today Sissy White, who I connected with through Aces Connection. Um, and she is a writer, activist, and mother. And so welcome, Sissy. So happy to have you here with us. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here, Terry. Yes, very exciting. So we were just talking off air for a few minutes, and I was loving everything that you were saying. And I was like, oh my gosh, we have to start recording. So <laughs> because this is great <laughs> stuff. So Tell us a little bit about yourself and what it is that you do. Um, well, uh, the way I describe myself most often is as a trauma mama, and that's really, and a writer. And those are the two kind of frameworks that bring me to this work. And, I mean, really my main goal is just to get um, talking about trauma in ways that are a little more conversational and a little less clinical and talking just about the way traumatic stress in childhood, especially from adverse childhood experiences, but really from anything, impacts us in our, in our lives as we're related to people, having relationships, working, and especially in terms of our parenting. And I just feel like there's so much shame and silence and so many of us have struggled alone instead of um, being able to support ourselves and each other by just being able to have open and honest conversations about what life is like after. after. Right. And well, and that's one of the things that, that we had just talked about prior to recording was, um, you know, finding that hope. And you had said, you know, sometimes... Our idea or the definition, societal definition of what hope is, um, is, is different than really what it is in, in real life for, for people who, especially people who have experienced trauma. Yeah, yeah, I think, and sometimes I think of it as like seasickness or like vertigo, and I think sometimes we forget that if somebody has vertigo or is seasick, like the first thing we need to do is just acknowledge it, like you're, you know, you're feeling off balance, like there's a reason, and it, it just kind of bypass that recognizing that piece and go right to like what makes it better and trying to fix it or solve it or address it. You, you know, we haven't really connected. You know, I feel right. like a lot of times the focus of resilience is really important. Resilience is, of course, really important. But I think sometimes we skip over um, what people are bouncing back from and addressing where that has where that has left people, You're right. where it's left us, and what we're dealing with. And so, you know, if I'm seasick on a boat, I'm not going to be watching the whales the same way as I am if I'm not feeling seasick. I'm not not about my ability to enjoy the whales, but my senses and my sensations and my experiences maybe overriding that experience. And that is, um, you know, I'm experiencing that, that whale watch day differently than someone else that isn't seasick. And I, I think sometimes we 
we kind of skip that part. <laughs> yeah, that's beautiful. What a great analogy. I've never heard it put that way, but it, I mean, really paints a great picture of what it's like. Yes. Yeah, and then so we're trying to go through life like, you know, so with parenting with aces, you know, it's like, okay, if I'm parenting while I'm seasick, that's a lot different than just even me parenting when I'm not seasick. So if I'm symptomatic and I've got traumatic stress and I'm, you know, my symptoms are active, you know, that is, that is, um, that colors my experiences and my capacities, but not my inherent capacities. It just may color what I'm experiencing or what I'm capable of while symptomatic. And I think sometimes we've labeled and diagnosed people as entirely the worst symptoms or we don't validate the symptoms and the experiences that cause them and go entirely to what we can do about it. Right. And for most of us who have post-traumatic stress that's complex, you know, that C um, is the complex part. It isn't, it isn't linear. It isn't... Um, one thing. It doesn't look exactly the same for everybody. Some people are really impacted in their personal lives, some people in their work lives, some people in family, some people in dating, some people in their sex lives, and how we feel in our physical bodies. Like, it isn't the same for everyone, how that shows up. There's impact. That part is pretty universal for people, but not how that impact shows up and gets expressed at different stages and stages depending on our support, our history, how historical trauma has been, if we've had, like, you know, generational poverty, as well as adversity in childhood, or if we have support versus we don't have support with the same set of adversity, like, it's so complicated, and I think that makes it really tricky, too, because it's not, we're not talking about one thing. Right. It's layered and complicated. Yes, well, and I, I just wrote about that too, and the fact that it's it, it also impacts people in all the ways that you said, as well as in a spiritual way, in a cognitive way, in a physical way. So there's body symptoms, there's, you know, there's just, it impacts on depth and on width and breadth. So, yes, absolutely. So you write, and... Um, and the activist part of it. So you are, are you out there? Um, you said, and, and I found it fascinating that you had gone to a trauma conference in Boston. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. So I live here in, um, I'm in Greater Boston. And so in 2014, the trauma center had a conference on, it was like a retrospective of tra- post-traumatic stress in the last 25 years, where have we come in treatment? And I had literally been diagnosed with PTSD 25 years prior. So I was like, this is for me. Because I was a writer, I had not been ever to a professional conference of any kind, never mind specifically on trauma. But I was, I felt like when I saw that, my daughter was old enough that I could travel into Boston. I mean, not, not even overnight, but just getting away. And my daughter was old enough, I was able to do that. And it really called to me because I had worshipped and loved Bethel Von Der Kolk's work and a lot of the people that were at the conference. Oh, cool, yes. People that I had, yeah, that I had learned from. And so I was like, 25 years, like, I literally have lived this in this greater Boston area, 
having a diagnosis. And at that time, they were looking at specifically developmental trauma. So I was like, this is this has been my adult life. This is so I went to that conference and. It was a four-day conference, and of course, people were brilliant. Like uh, Rachel Yehuda was there talking about epigenetics, which I did not understand at all. <laughs> <laughs> but she was talking about generational trauma and the impact of um, trauma on Holocaust survivors' children and um, people that had been pregnant during 9/11 and the children who had survived loss uh, in utero or their parents had had such. Um, intense stress um, and just like the impact on the oh yeah the next generation it's right really something I had never heard of but you know Stephen Porges and just stopped talking about polyvagal theory and all the stuff that was really new to me and exciting Stephen Fisher I know development but what was most profound to me was there wasn't anybody speaking about post-traumatic stress and where we've come in the last 25 years as someone who has post-traumatic stress as somebody who was parenting with post-traumatic stress, as somebody who was um, even saying, yeah, like, this modality worked and someone didn't. Um, nobody was, it was, it was like, you know, when I left, it felt like people with traumatic stress were kind of talked about, like, rats or subjects that, right. like, you know, doctors were studying. And it was, there was even people who made up fake names of trauma survivors as composites. And we're saying, like, you know, they, you know, they were using the names of their kids to say, like, Kathy has a profile of, and they'd go into, into somebody's history and, like, make up a person. And I just thought, as a feminist, I was like, there are so many people speaking about their own experiences. Like, why aren't they here? Why, right. why isn't someone talking about how this is relevant in daily life when it shows up at work and in parenting and our relationships out of a clinical hour, out of an office setting, when we're just living, right? Breastfeeding or diaper changing or managing a relationship or getting a new job or and having extra stressors like or just even the little things that are not little and talked about. Okay. Uh, how do you manage post-traumatic stress and pregnancy? Or how do you manage post-traumatic stress at menopause? And like, how does that feel? Because we can learn about how the brain is impacted by ACEs, but that doesn't, that's not going to tell us how it feels to be in the body that's right. that brain right. or seven for decades. Sure, I remember when my first menopause symptoms started to hit, and I had some, I always seem to have funky symptoms anyway, but I had like electric jolts happening in my body, like it, they would all of a sudden like it'd be like, you know, like someone was sticking me with a cattle prod, like zzz, you know, like on my leg and on my head, and, on, and then I, I, my first reaction was to do what I used to do when I would have panic attacks so bad, which was to go into, like I could feel all those everything triggering, all those senses rising, and then using what I now know in the education and the research material, I, I just decided, well, let me look up menopause symptoms. One of the first things was, you'll feel electric jolts in your body, and I was like, ah, see? So, I again, but someone who doesn't know what I know and have gone through the journey I've gone through wouldn't, you know, and then so a simple little symptom 
shows up and it can it could just totally throw somebody with you know PTSD um, off. So yeah. Yeah, and I was in New York when I was going through menopause because for a lot of people it's post traumatic stress, complex post traumatic stress. It can come on a little earlier than it does for other people, and that was something that happened to me and that I found out um, when I went through menopause kind of abruptly um, after I had gone through a flood and. Then, you know, at first everyone was like, no, it's not menopause, it's just, it's just stress from the flood, and that, that, was, that was not true. Um, so it, just, it kind of came on very abruptly, and then I was in full on, um, and I had no idea what the, it, 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 it was triggering for me as well, because it triggered a lot of anxiety, because there was so much happening in my body, and my body was still a place that I was learning how to be safe in, and so... I was so uh, startled by my sensations, and some of them were just, were, it wasn't like they were, wasn't always anxiety, but my sensations were anxiety producing, because I just, sure. I didn't have a comfort in my body, Right. and I didn't, there was nobody, there were books on menopause, and there were books on being a survivor, there were books on trauma, but there was nothing about like, being the body, right. surviving trauma, Yes. And, what that feels like, you know, it's you have hot flashes and they trigger memories and then you got to go to a meeting and drive carpool. Like, there wasn't really anything that was just about the non-science or academic side of it. And so that's really what got me into activism is I was craving conversations with people that were living it, not people that were studying it. And I really admire the people that are studying it, but that's not what I was craving. Right. I was really craving community and people that got it and got how it felt and um, had managed, frankly, uh, symptoms that were worse than mine and I thought were doing better than me. And I was like, I want to I wanna learn from them. Right. Like, I, wanna, I, need, I need Sherpas and I need people that have been on this mountain. And I yeah. think that those are the people I need. Yes. And that's, well, and again, we had talked beforehand about how, you know, there's just connection that happens in, in our truth and putting it out there, whether it's through writing or, you know, just speaking or, or just telling our story to somebody and opening up that there, that's so much, so many times where the hope lies, just in that acknowledgement and that connection of, of someone who gets it. Yeah. 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 And I think that Vincent Floyd's study and Donna Jackson Magazine's book, How Kids Disrupted, when she talks about how Vincent Floyd, Dr. Vincent Floyd, asks people, How has your past affected you? And so it opens up the question to, like, you know yourself. And I, I just love that question because it's so respectful of, like, you know, how have you been impacted? Instead of, even what's wrong with you or what happened, yes. what happened to you, but more how has it impacted you? You know, it's totally present tense. It's like, where are we now? How is it for you now? And I think that level of acknowledgement that doesn't, that just starts out as acceptance, like, okay, these things have happened and they've had impact. Like, tell me about that. It's yeah. something that we so rarely ever have. It doesn't happen in families. It doesn't happen in society. It doesn't happen in medical offices. A lot of times it's so uncomfortable for people that, that adversity happens that we just, like, skip over that part that's like, right. yeah, that happened. Like, that must have been hard. Or, 
as a result. You know, and how do you manage so freaking well? Considering, you know, like we don't, like we don't get to celebrate our survival and our like how crafty and creative we've been with stuff, and we don't get to share that with each other either, which I think is the really um, hopeful part because people right. do manage incredibly and. And people want to, honestly, my experience has been that people want to help in whatever way they can. And what I mean by that is that I have learned personally, and it's part of my message to people, is tell people what's happening with you. Put your story out there. Put your truth out there. Because, and and I had go, I'd flown down to Orlando for a writer's conference, and um, before I went down, I called this um i think it was the omni it was it was a resort and i said um what how tall is your building and she was like 14 stories and i said oh i have height issues i said is can i request a lower floor and anyway long story short they they basically told me you know there's no way to guarantee so i sent off an email to the manager of the resort and just said hey here's my here's my history you know, and just kind of, here's, you know, I have PTSD, I have height issues, what can you do for me? Anything you can do would be so appreciative. I was very positive, very, you know, if you can help, great. If you can't, I understand. And the person, you know, emailed back, we've got you taken care of, just come check with me when you get here. Had put us on the third floor in this beautiful room, like upgraded us. It was just, it was so wonderful because they honored my issues and my what I needed um, and so again I'm learning that it's okay to put it out there and even if somebody can't help I'm still very thankful and you know thank them well thanks anyway but that maybe they can you know maybe they yeah. can help yeah. so. and then you're not hiding right right absolutely you're not, you're not hiding anymore like you're showing up as the you who <laughs> has this height issue which means that's gonna actually take up way less space when you're there and at your at your whatever you're doing than if you're trying to hide that and you're managing all that privately and carrying all that kind of in some other way and then that's really distracting you but nobody knows why. Right, yeah, excellent. Yes, exactly. Like why you know, every time I get in the elevator, oh my god, I gotta go up to the fourteenth floor. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. I had a, it's not funny, haha, but I got uh, one of the first keynotes I ever did was in North Carolina. And one of the people that had been uh, dangerous in my childhood lived there. And I was like, how can I tell these? This conference, like, I'm sorry, but the state of North Carolina is trigger, trigger. <laughs> right, <laughs> right. But that's true. I get it. <laughs> I'm like, you know, like, I. I'm afraid this person might show up at the conference. Well, you know, the likelihood of that, like, I guess, makes zero, like, very little likelihood of that happening. But yet, I was carrying that. And when I finally said something, and in that case, not the conference people, but because I didn't know them well enough. But when I said that to my own inner circle, you know, people offered to come with me or fly with me. Aww. And I really, I really just needed to say it. Yes. And then once I said it, I was like, yeah, I don't. Then I could walk through, like, and get back to my reason, reason, and get out of the fearful part of my brain that was like all 
torqued up on what could happen if, like, this person showed up at my hotel or something. And then I was like, really? And then once I expressed it, I could be like, yeah, no, I mean, I really am going to be fine. And then, but I had to get somebody else, like, supporting and offering help and, like, kind of looking at it with me to, to get back to my right. more reasonable part of my brain. And I think for a lot of us, at least for me, I probably spent the first 10 years of healing even trying to hide from myself how terrified I was most of the time. Right. Yeah. And and that and that made life so much harder. Sure. And it, it, it made a lot of choices harder and it made people not it made me not be able to be that present for people and it made people not be able to connect with me. And I wasn't I was just so ashamed of how much fear I had and I think like that's the other part of these conversations is like if you tell me you had that height issue, like it it makes me feel safer. Like I can share more. It doesn't. And I think what we're afraid will happen is that people will judge us. But I, instead, I think people, everyone has stuff. And so oh, right. people just end up opening up more. Yes, and that's what I have found. I mean, I'm that Facebook person. Good gracious, I put all my stuff out there anymore. Like I'm just like blah. There it is. <laughs> and but what's so cool is how many people reach out to me privately mostly. You know, they'll send yep. me a text or they'll send me a private Facebook message or they'll email me or whatever and they'll say, "Oh my gosh, you know, I have this too or or maybe not the exact same thing but something similar." And just that connection through putting putting the realness out there, I guess. Um, and it's so rare. Like I think social media has um, for a lot of people that have had uh, what used to be socially unacceptable or there was a lot of stigma things, like, it gave us access to one another in ways we never had before. Yes. Like, I used to feel like, when I went to therapy, I used to feel like, I want to be my therapist because my therapist is seeing, like, 40 versions of me every week, and I don't know anyone on the friggin' planet that has gone through the same thing. And, like, I was craving for those other people and hearing, like, how are they feeling? How are they coping? What were they doing? How are they managing? And, like, didn't know where to find them. Right. Like, you know, like, where are those people? Yes. If there's one in four girls that are abused, and if there's one in six boys, if there's all these people with all these different kind of trauma, like, how come, how come there doesn't seem to be anybody saying anything? So I'm with you. I'm, like, I am admittedly, like I tell my family, you know, you don't have to follow me on Facebook or like, <laughs> like I guess that it's not interesting or it's not necessarily where, where you are, but I know because I also get emails and letters from people that are like, I didn't know that, or I was afraid to say that, or I can't post that, or I can't say something right. like that, but, but, but are dying, like are so in pain and are so in need of just knowing somebody else gets it that I'm like, I don't I mean, for the people that think it's like too much or oversharing, I'm like, that's okay. They can right. that they'll be fine. But I, I say, yeah. People, for the other people, you know, it's like medicine and hope. Yes, 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 yes. And I tell, and I'll put that sometimes before I put a post. I'll be like. Um, yeah, this is going to be a long one, and it's going to be one of those, you know, vomit in your lap kind of things. I'm going to be putting some stuff out here, so you can stop reading right here, um, yeah. and move on. Just scroll on past. <laughs> because yeah, because they will. If it doesn't, if right. they will need it, they will. Right. But, but again, like you said, there's just so many people. It is like a medicine. It is, it's, it's, it's a hope medicine. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. Um, yeah, hope medicine because I don't. I don't think we get enough. You know, doses of hope from each other, and I right. don't think it has to be. Um, yeah, and you mentioned you were you were you're a writer, and I think I think for me being a writer, one of the that's I feel really lucky that I was a writer because I'm not sure if I hadn't been a writer and been in writing circles, I would have braved sharing more of my story um, because other people in writing circles were sharing their story, even if they weren't the same story. Like in a writing circle. Something, if something is emotional or it touches you, you know, that's considered good writing. And in, in kind of the rest of the world, a lot of times if something touches you or moves you, it's like something people move away from or it might feel like, well, that's too much. Or especially if it's trauma, it can be like peanut allergies. Like everybody's like, I don't want to show you. Right. You know, like they don't, they just don't know what to do. Like, what's going to help? What's going to split it up? Like, I don't, I don't know. So just like put them at the peanut table, like, I'm sorry I'm laughing, but it's so true, (laughs) so it's safe, the intention is like, I want to protect, but I don't want to do any harm, or I don't want to do anything, but a lot of times it's just like, isolating, and you can feel people's fear of like, oh, I'm trying to eat, and not, and not knowing, like, what's the protocol, like, what do you do, and I think, I think a lot of times, it's, like you don't have to treat trauma to acknowledge trauma. Like you don't have to be a grief counselor to acknowledge a loss. And I think we, when it comes to trauma, people get very medical and very clinical, and and not don't realize like well, we're talking human suffering. It's been right. for all time. But if we're writers, we know that because it's all in our literature. It's all in stories. There, yes. it's all over the place. It's it's woven in. So I think. At least for me, being a writer has helped normalize suffering and, like, yeah, this is part of the human condition. And it might not be the part of the human condition that gets covered most on Facebook, but it's definitely always there in literature. And for me also, like, you know, my, my entry into learning about trauma was entirely personal and really, like, how to make my own life better, really. I mean, for many, many, many years. And the last five years and working at ACES Connection and being part of Parenting with ACES, I've benefited by being like, okay, learning about the ACE studies for me has been super empowering because I'm like, I never had a social um, context for adversity. I didn't know how many people uh, on the rest of the planet did or did not grow up with adversity. I didn't understand, oh, okay. 12 to 15% of people have six more ACEs or, you know, two out of three people have at least one. I just had none of that information at all and it felt very private and individual. And for some, for, for me, getting that, learning about social determinants of health, health made it, like, it profoundly changed me, but it also made it way less personal. Like, this happens to lots of people. This is not something I want to happen in my own parenting my kid and if I learn about the AIDS study then I learn about if my kid doesn't have these things happen she's going to have all these advantages and they're lifelong right. so for me that was really inspiring because at the beginning of my healing journey I was like even if I can't help myself because I didn't have a ton of hope in the beginning I was like I can make things really different for 
my daughter. And and in that process of learning about attachment and love and nurturing and attunement, then I was like, oh, these are all the things I didn't get right. when yeah. I had adversity. And then I was like, oh, anyone that doesn't get these things is going to have some pain. And anyone that gets these things is going to have some advantages. And that, even after 20 years of therapy, was not something that had ever been conveyed. It was still very much like it was my personal problem with trauma. And, right. I, and I didn't understand. Like, when I remember I cried when I saw the slide um, that, like, over 90% of people in their 50s who had six or more ACEs had been prescribed anxiety or antidepressant medication, whether they took it or not, but had been prescribed. And I remember crying, and I was crying in relief because I was like, I didn't know how many people with ACEs how normal it would be to struggle with mood. Like, when I saw that, I was like, why didn't anyone tell me that? Like, right. That was really helpful information to know <laughs> right. when I was considering taking medications. Whether I took them or not, it would have been validating just to know this is something a lot of people with a lot of ACEs struggle with. Right. Managing mood. Right. And that, that is really profound information that, it's starting to be more accessible to people, and if that's why I work at Aces Connection, because I feel like when people understand that, then I can look at myself, and I can look at my family, but then I can also look at, okay, the rest of the world, the wider community, and then I'm like, oh, and also, I have advantages, like, I'm white, I'm middle class, like, imagine if I had eight Aces, and I also had to deal with racial, racial trauma my whole life that didn't end when my trauma ended, that was continual. Or what if I had um, generations and generations of poverty, and in my, like, I'm the first person in my family to go to college, but like, when I was also dealing with all my ACEs and I didn't have insurance, right. and I was poor. Like, so then I was able to see, like, oh, context matters a lot, a lot. And, and that turns, at least for me, I feel like that turns everyone into an activist in a great way. Like, okay, well, we want to make things better for ourselves, but we want to make things better for our kids. We want to make things better for everybody. Right, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think that's beautiful, and I, I had you just taught me something in that I never, I mean, I had understood the, the concept of context, but never put that way before, and so, yeah, very beautiful, thank you. Because, oh, um, yeah. I, I mean, I've been lucky, like, I feel like, um, so I work at ACES Connection helping with organizing communities who are doing initiatives around trying to get communities dealing together, like, in a cross-sector way, like, how can the criminal justice system, how can the child welfare system, how can doctors and nurses, how can schools and teachers, how can we all, and parents and residents, like, how can we all be looking at ways not only of preventing ACEs, which of course matters, but addressing community experiences that are traumatic and violent, as well as what, you know, people still matter, even if prevention didn't happen. And people are, there's a lot of us walking around with high ACEs, and if we only talk about prevention, right, then, you know, our value is only as uh, examples of failed prevention, and we're way more than that. Right. I just wrote a newsletter for, for July, and one of the things I talked about was having a 
you know, trauma-sensitive schools are like one of those things, you know, rising to the surface. And I said, well, what about, you know, working together, and it sounds like what you're doing is a trauma-sensitive society. And if we can have, create a trauma-sensitive society where the more you and I and others talk about real life, you know, like, like you said, not the academic part of it, but the real life part of it, and how it impacts us and what we're doing and what works and what doesn't work. And it's all individualized. What works for some won't work for others and vice versa. But as we bring it more to awareness and shine that light on it, on that dark little secret that we all carried around for so long, then society then becomes more in tune with it and more compassionate. And we have a more compassionate society towards, like you just said, those who are in poverty with ACEs, those who, um, you know, yeah, might be having racial tension and ACEs. Whatever it is, um, again, it, we just need to keep making people aware of it. Yeah, and I think we really have to um, not skip the part where people are saying, like, like I would say, it's not trauma-informed if it's not informed by trauma survivors. Yes. I, I worry that when we only focus on understanding, okay, how trauma impacts the brain, how trauma impacts the body, it's really, really, really important that we do that, but I liken it to if um, I go to a doctor who understands the reproductive system or the female body, but is male, is it, that person isn't necessarily going to understand what menopause feels like or what managing a period is like at a swimming pool or what it's like to wake up in the middle of the night to care for a crying kid. I don't know, like, could it there? Uh, or it's a, I mean, breastfeeding or something. Right, like. breastfeeding, right. Understanding the female body is not the same as understanding what the female experience is in that body with ACEs. So I feel like a lot of times we're starting to become more aware of trauma, but I think we also have to be really careful that we make sure we hear from people who are trauma survivors and the range and diversity of that, like the complexity of that, because we can't just um, fix trauma without realizing what people who have had trauma are saying, okay, here's what hurts the most, here's what helps the most, here's what I need. There's a lot of times um, that the people that are in charge and doing trauma-informed programming aren't necessarily survivors and aren't necessarily leading initiatives with other survivors of trauma and I think have super wonderful intentions but don't always understand first-person experiences or what communities they're dealing with. And the only way, I think Brian Stevenson calls it proximity, is like be proximate with the people, if you're working on an issue, the people who have that issue right. must be at the table every yeah. time, yes. all the time. Yeah. Otherwise, we're talking at issues and about issues, but not with people about how to solve and address those issues. And that, that to me, is what I worry about because I'm so excited about how much, how much is happening in the movement. Oh right my gosh! Cool. Yes have led the way in changing things because if something's good for a kid who's had a trauma history and we're sensitive to that, it's still going to be, it's like an apple. If you have really great nutrition, an apple's still good for you. And if you um, don't have good nutrition, 
an apple is really extra good for you. Like, it's good for everyone. So trauma-sensitive approaches, I feel like, are good for everyone. They're just especially good for kids who have trauma. But right. we have to understand that um, how that how kids who've had trauma are experiencing school, say, and not just go to a, an, a modality that treats Right, and it's all individualized, absolutely, yes. And I had so many teachers, friends reach out to me and say, Terry, how do I, what do I do, what do I do, how do I do this? Because I had worked for an agency, a mental health agency um, here in Cincinnati and um, worked in school settings and so I, you know, had these kiddos coming to me and there was just such a range of whether it was bullying, whether it was abuse at home, whether it was coming to school, hadn't eaten all weekend and starving on Monday morning. You know, there was just, again, such a range of, of trauma happening in these kiddos' lives. And um, so, yeah, and I remember talking to teachers and saying, you know, I wish there was a, I wish there was a Band-Aid I could give you to just, like, fix it all. But... It's all individual, and it's all, um, you know, and, and one of the cool things that I think is coming out is letting these teachers know that them just being a positive and encouraging and loving presence in these children's lives is part of what's building up their resilience, is giving them that, that resilience factor. Um, yes. Because if they, yes. can, if they can be an anchor, if they can be a you know, that, that grounding force, um, and that is kind of a band-aid fix for, you know, all the kids, but, but they still need to look at those individual children and what's happening for that particular child. I mean, is it that the child is having some trauma issues at home, maybe parents are going through a difficulty, and the child has ADHD on top of it? You know, that that's going to be such a different approach than the kid who's, um, you know, maybe being abused, you're, there's just, there is no fix-all <laughs> solution. Yeah, yeah, and there's, um, there's this woman um, who I just met fairly recently, Emily Reed Daniels, and she talks about the regulated classroom, and her big emphasis, and why I like it so much, is she talks about how you're not going to have a regulated classroom without a regulated teacher. You know, the teacher has to be regulated in order to respond, and for me it resonates too, because, you know, we focus so much on prevention and how to reach kids but I feel like the best way to reach kids is by reaching their parents and we often skip that part like right. you know like we right. forget that parents um have tremendous power and that said so do teachers like I I know that I feel like for me school was a sanctuary oh. school was a safe a safe place for me it was a life-saving place but I also know other people with high aces who've had um, really terrible experiences in school and it added on a layer of trauma so I think it can be it can be uh, really safe for some people or for some people it's the source of their trauma maybe they have bullying or maybe they um, have been racially profiled in a school setting or been um, assaulted by a teacher or a caregiver so I think just like what I tell teachers is having schools be safe and having school be like predictable, reliable, people being honest and attentive, like they don't have to become social workers or therapists to be, like you said, safe anchors. 
Yes. Even if they think is healing, but they don't have to like practice some form of healing. And if they are um, regulated and attentive and attuned, like that's going to matter because you couldn't give 30 kids, you know, mindfulness meditation if actually they were starving. Right. You know, like cause right. being really present to your hunger isn't going to help if, if you actually need food. So it's being like, okay, we can't just supply something without looking at what is the, what's the primary issue here and, and then figuring out how do we respond to that. And I think sometimes we skip right to the fix and rather than the person. Yes. Beautiful way to put it. Yes, exactly. I know my head, like I'm swimming with these thoughts of these teachers and these kids and how there are, I, I can honestly say by how many teachers who have reached out to me, you know, just in my personal circle and have said they wish they had something, a, a, a guiding um, something to help them because they know they have so many children in their classrooms and it seems to be getting more and more, sadly. I know, I've um, heard that too, like it's really, the numbers are going up yeah. and, uh, and how many, um, and how difficult that must be for teachers. Like, oh. nobody wants to say to those teachers that are reaching out to you, like, I bet they're probably awesome already because they are care, you know, like they care yes. and they're aware and like, I think that honestly is like a lot of it, but it, but, but there needs to be, but it's not just that simple because I think teachers, um, are being asked to do so much more than just teach. Right. And right. what an incredibly um, burdensome responsibility, as well as wonderful, because, I mean, I think, I mean, I still think fondly of teachers, like, they touch lives, like, oh. they just have so much power and influence and ability to shape and change. Yes. Um, my second grade teacher, I still, I can, I still know, I remember her name, Mrs. Corkin. I remember where she lived. She, and I still have a little ceramic heart. It was like a little jewelry box that she had given me, um, and I still have it. And it, it's a treasure oh. to me because that was right after you know um, I had been sexually abused for the first time and. Um, just just some really horrible, horrible things happening in my life in that, that age range. And she was just such a gentle, beautiful, supportive presence in my life. And just very profound, a very profound effect on me as far as, you know, in, in hindsight, looking back, she was one of those powerful figures. Um, and didn't do anything really crazy special other than give me some attention and some love. Um, first, I'm so sorry that you were sexually abused. Oh, thank you. I am so sorry, and I am so glad that you had someone in your life at that stage that just saw you. Right, and that's what it is, and that's why I tell these teachers, you know, just just acknowledge, um, you know, these kids' pain, and um, you don't have to, you can't fix it, um, but just to be there for them is is more crucial than I think they could possibly understand. Yeah, so. I do. I do too. And I think I think there's like uh, there's lots happening where I feel like you know it makes me excited that in the culture teachers are understanding behaviors less as like flaws and more like symptoms. Like I do feel like there's huge big changes in the culture. Right. 
that are so positive and that make make kids get like I don't know about you, but I mean I definitely tried to fly under the radar and I, I look back and I'm like, Oh, I tried to pass for normal. Like I right. didn't want anyone to know what was happening oh, gosh, in my no. own life. And I even had some teachers that reached out, um and I didn't know how to receive it because I was like, what? Like, they were like, how are things at home? And I was like, not going there, not going there. Right. <laughs> it freaked me out that they were even asking. And I didn't at the time take it. And, but now, I mean, I, there was this Mrs. Malone. And she reached out to me, is everything okay at home? And at the time, I was like, yep. Like, ran right. out of the room, didn't ever respond. Like, but you know she had to have known, right? Like she, now I know. Yeah. Like, oh, she was looking out. Like, oh. That, you know, like, it didn't reach me at the time, but it also never left me. And yeah. I'm like, oh, like, that was her way. And, right. and But I also do think we have to remember that if you're in a situation that's actively traumatic, and so kids in school, you know, who are living with trauma and have to go home and face trauma again, like, I personally am of the belief, you know, you want to be, you want school to be as safe as it can possibly be, but also we have to respect, like, kids are in survival mode, and so those survival and defense mechanisms, um, they have their place. So, although I look at Mrs. Malone, you know, I don't think it was a missed opportunity. That's as much as I could take of it at the time, because I still had to go home to the same place and deal with the same stuff. And if I, like, started being all emotionally open and sharing and talking, I would not have been in good shape at my house right. as a kid. You know, like, I wouldn't, it, that wouldn't have flown at home. So I also think we have to understand, like, school has to be safe, but not think, we're going to So I, I do want to offer you an opportunity, and you can certainly not do it. We're, we're um, at our time limit, but I, I have two more things that I wanted to ask. And one was, if you, if you want to talk about your story and your ACEs history, I would love to have you share. But certainly, if you're not comfortable, that's fine, too. And then um, my other question, and I'll let you contemplate it while, for just a second, because I love throwing this question out at people, because I love the answers. They're so amazing is if you could meet anyone in the world, dead or alive, who could help you with your mission, who would it be? Ooh, oh, those are two <laughs> questions. What do you think? Uh, oh, wow. I know. Isn't that a good one? I love that question. It's really, really good. I think if I could meet anyone, oh, I don't, oh, I don't know. I mean, if I can meet anyone dead or alive, I like might see too many people, but like, <laughs> yeah, I think it would probably be people, it would be characters in books that, that, um, that saved me. If I could make, if I could make some of these characters into real people that I could ask or thank, like, there's so many authors. I mean, I feel like for me, writing and books 
as a kid literally saved me. What a cool so, answer. I love that. Yeah, so I just think some of those characters feel like they were they were anchors. Yeah. Some characters were anchors, and so I guess I'd want to thank some of those authors, but also I'd like to meet, it's like some of those people, I could make them real, I'd make them real. And that's my personal story. I have to say, I have a positive, like a fun thing. My mother just turned 70, and um, she was young, she was a teen, and I, one of the things I guess I'd want to say about my story is, like, I spent probably the first half of my life raging at the family I came from, and that's going to almost make me cry. You know, I feel, part of me feels bad because the old healing model was, at least this is how it felt for me, that if I wanted to heal, I needed to get away from my toxic family, and it was either health or family, and honestly, those are shitty choices. Like, sure, yeah. Because if you lose your family, even if, no matter who your family is, you know, that is a hard and painful loss, even if it's in the name of, you know, health. So my father was homeless and an active alcoholic his whole life. He was violent, and that's part of my aces. He never got sober. He was never in my life. Um, but I, but my mother, um, who was a teenager and had been abused by my father, has had my sister and I, um, you know, she did a, she did a ton of work, like, in our own life and turning her, her own life around and helping us turn our lives around. But it wasn't really until my 40s that I even appreciated that my mother was 16 with her own high score and a baby on the way and then had to figure out how to manage and cope with no more skills than I had and actually more stress, more challenges, um, and less resources. So I feel like a lot of times when we talk about our, at least for me, a lot of times in my whole life when I talk about my history, I've talked about how hard my early life was, and it, I mean, it was. <laughs> I don't want, you know, don't want anyone else to have it. Don't want my daughter to have it. But I also realized, like, okay, my parents really did the best they could. And in my father's case, like, I can say it was the best he could do, and it wasn't what I needed, you know? Like, yeah. that's both true. It right. was the best he could do. And it was really sucked for me. Um, and, but I feel like once, like, understanding ACEs is a little more hopeful because it's like we can learn. Like, my mother didn't keep anything from me that she gave to herself. She just didn't know stuff. When she was younger, she didn't know stuff. And some of the stuff I've learned by learning about attachment and attunement and what, what I feel like are the advantages that people have who don't have ACEs, you know, those ACE advantages from yes. early four, I feel like we can share those with our own family members. It's not just we're changing future generations, which is amazing that we get to be able to do that and be a part of that, but we also get to, like, help heal some of the past and some of the people in our own families who didn't have those resources, and without those resources... Sure. So, yeah. So for me, my personal story of aging and into my fifties now is not just grieving what I didn't get, but also being more able to say, yeah, like at least we I get to have it now, and I can share it with other people, and I I am really grateful for that. 
Yes. And I'm really grateful for what people before me did with what they had, which doesn't mean I think it was enough. And frankly, I feel like my daughter deserves more than I had been able to do when she was little. I, I, you know, she does not have an A score of zero. She has half the score I do, but it's still not zero. And right. I hope um, if she decides to have kids, I hope her kids do have a zero score. I hope we half, half, and half it down to zero in two generations. That would be my hope. Yes. I love it. And then what a beautiful hope to have. I, I wrote a, my latest blog was about my dad. And it, you know, for the first 10 years of my life, my dad was um, physically abusive. And uh, I also had an alcoholic parent. My mother was a severe alcoholic. And so she would um, demand that my dad, you know, silence the children when she didn't want to deal with us. And so he, as I put it in my blog, you know, he used his belt and his frustration to follow her commands. Um, and so he did. And and so when I, I was making this memory book of my dad's life for my mom, who's still alive at 82 and kicking, and um, and I, I went to write, like, one of the prompts on this memory book was, you know, happy memories. And so I started to write all out these happy memories, and I was like, I kind of feel like I'm being hypocritical because I'm in the middle of finishing up this book that talks about my ACEs history with my dad for those first 10 years. And then I'm over here writing all these happy memories about my dad. So I called my sister and I said, how do I balance this? And she was like, it's okay that you focus on the happy parts and the memories. Cause you know, you and dad had come to this place of forgiveness and he was sorry for what he had done. And so I said, you know what it is, it is okay to look at what had happened and learn from that, the lessons that, that I learned, you know, from the traumatic part of it, but then to, to then move on and, you know, focus on the happy parts that I had with my dad. So, yeah. Carrie, that's like, it's, that's so important. And I'm so glad you said that because I think depending on where people are in the healing process, you know, like, I'm, I'm in my 50s, but if someone had told me that in my 30s, it would have felt really invalidating. Yes. You know, like, I think you're right. Like, we have to really honor, like, where we're at and where we've come and have places where we can say how bad it was. And then also, like, before when we were talking, you said trauma warriors, and I don't know, that's not a phrase I've heard, but I absolutely <laughs> love it. I think being a trauma warrior is like, yeah, we can see the good that happened, even if I'm stuff we never would have wanted to happen or wished on someone else. But we also got stuff out of it. We learned stuff. We figured out stuff. We grew in these which to be grateful for, even if we wished they didn't happen that way. Um, and I, but I do think you're right. It's really, it's really tender and really tricky. And I feel like it's also really personal. What, like I, I am all for people. I am supportive of people that can't have relationships with family members or that need to focus entirely on the grief in order to honor their own journey and process, as well as people that talk about forgiveness and have found total, you know, I feel like it's all what, uh, it's so individual. So I just, I, I think you just saying, reaching out to your sister like that, I think lots of us who are survivors have had a lot of those conversations that, like, how do I honor this person's birthday and also my journey? How do right. I honor this yeah. Or a wedding, and also, it, you know, where I'm at. And if I'm in exquisite agony, I may not be able to do both. 
Right. You may not be able to do both. And, and that's okay. Has to be okay. And it's okay. Right. That's okay. Yeah. Uh, well, in closing, so is there anything else that you wanted to touch upon or that you think our need, our, our listeners need to, to need to hear? Um, yeah. Regarding ACEs? Yeah, I, think, or... I, think I think it can be uh, the longer you're in the healing journey, at least for me, the only like hope olive branch I would say is I feel like the older I get and the longer I've been at healing, the more reward, the more, like, it, like ACEs are cumulative, and we know, like, okay, the more ACEs, uh, the more risks for unhealthy outcomes and the more risks we have for things. But healing is also cumulative, and I feel like as I age and embed and change and grow in certain ways, like, there's also, it doesn't take as much effort to heal as it did in the early stages, so I guess I would just say to anybody that's earlier in the process, like, it does get easier, and you are building and laying track and building blocks, and it is really arduous in the beginning, and it can feel like a huge leap of faith. But, like, it does keep paying off, and it's cumulatively beneficial and generationally beneficial. And, like, just keep at it. Yes. Just keep at it. It's really honorable work. I say yay to that because I agree 100%. Beautiful. Well, it has been a joy and a pleasure to have you on air. Thank you so much for, for being here and, and sharing so much insightful information and your story as well. So. Thanks. Thank you for having me, and um, thank you for doing this podcast and for your work. Oh, thank you. Well, yes, again, thank you for yours as well. So I'm going to uh, pause this for a moment, and then I'll do my closing out. Well, actually, I'm going to go ahead and finish, do my closeout. Everybody, thanks for joining us. Uh, I will see you um, in two weeks from today. All right, thanks. Bye-bye.